Are you ready to up-level your performance, become a better sales coach, and grow revenue? Are you ready to be ready? Then ready, set, sell. I'm Hannah, a B2B sales enthusiast and sales consultant, advocating for sales to be a little more human. And I'm Tony from MindTickle, where I'm a sales leader and coach. And you're listening to Ready, Set, Sell, a podcast dedicated to helping revenue and sales professionals like you adopt a sales readiness approach to ensure your team is always ready to win. In each episode, we share smart insights, tangible advice, and actionable tips that can be applied directly to the work you do every day to drive organizational growth. Let's dive into the episode. When it comes to growing, scaling, and developing an excellent sales team, there's truly a fine art to it that can't be learned overnight. No, that's true. Completely true. Our guest today has spent most of her career, that's more than 15 years, learning the best strategies for fostering sustainable growth, leading a team, and helping B2B sales organizations scale up. Stephanie Valenti is the Chief Revenue Officer at Smartbug Media. I just, I love the name, Uh, which means she leads sales, marketing, and all client services and delivery departments at the company. It's not just the name that's impressive, it's her resume. It truly (laughs) was impressive. And over the years, Stephanie has learned a thing or two about great leadership, B2B sales, and the customer journey overall. And she's just uh, got a fantastic spirit. Yeah, she has so much energy. So I think you're going to find this discussion was full of insightful advice from Stephanie and plenty of actionable tips that you can benefit from no matter your current role within your organization. Let's get into the episode. Hello, Stephanie, and thanks so much for being on the podcast here today. Hannah and I had a little bit of a summer break, a couple of cocktails here and there, I'm sure, were involved, but we're very excited to have you back as our first guest. So as we're getting started, was hoping you'd give us a little bit of an overview of your career background so far. Yes, it's quite the story, Tony and Hannah, quite the story. So I started out in B2B sales with Staples Business Advantage, which is really what kicked off my passion for selling. But it was old school, right? It was going door to door. It was leaving business cards. It was sending gate crashers and just really just fell in love with performance based work. Right. So had the opportunity to start there and did everything within that organization from business development to leadership of business development, jumped over to account management and then even went into director work with like project based. Did that for about eight years. Loved it. Got tons of experience and had my first opportunity to be at the executive table and run a sales organization. So that was with very it was a lot of fun, lots of experiences. So learned a ton in that job as my first executive job, so crazy. After that, I said, I'm gonna be completely wild and go take a COO role and lead everything but revenue. I really enjoyed it, but man, I missed revenue. Right. I I was I was I like I could only make things so efficient for so long. And I was like, I've got to have another challenge. And so I had done a lot with Pavilion. I was doing um, teaching classes and and different mentorships and just getting really involved with that organization. And so I started to be like, gosh, I want to go help businesses grow better again right? Because furniture really didn't do that. Like I could say all day long that I could spin and say like, oh, your furniture is going to keep your employees longer. But I was, you know, kidding myself, right? Like I wasn't helping (laughs) businesses grow. And so, so yeah, I had the opportunity to join Smartbug Media. I am the chief revenue officer there today. I've been there about six months and I run sales, 
marketing, and all of our delivery and operations teams. So kind of still like, you know, operations with the COO hat on, but also running revenue. So I wanted a challenge and I'm getting it. I'm learning something new every single day being in a new industry, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. What would you say is like your speciality or area of focus as like a sales professional over the last decade plus? Throughout my journey, I've noticed there are different types of leaders. You have the real small startup, right? Gritty, like you're going to sell and you're going to hire that first salesperson and you're going to figure out your solution statement, right? The, the real gritty startup. Then you have that scaling leader. And then you have like your enterprise leader that's going to go make things efficient. I look at myself as my speciality in the begin- in the middle, right? I love scaling. I love coming in and being like, hmm you've really set this up well, but it's not scalable. I love looking at the organizational structure and design and building process on top of that and helping people be better at what they already created, right? Continually making things a teeny bit better for longevity. So I'd say that's that's where I like living. Oh my God, me too. I love it. I love it. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> Very cool. I mean, I have to admit, you know, if you gave me a good couch and a cocktail, I think I could probably sell a lot better as well. So, um, <laughs> you know, just, just bring that to the table. You know, Stephanie, from your background, it seems like you're, yeah, you have so much energy, always on the go. And I, I know you have three kids. I have three kids myself. But, you know, what, what would you say, you know, keeps you motivated in your day to day? Obviously, so much going on. What really keeps you motivated these days? There's a lot of things, right? I'd say family is a big part of it. And I talk about this on LinkedIn a little bit, but I had an unexpected, I did not plan on having my first child as early as I did, right? I had my first child at 19 and had planned on being a doctor, right? So I was going to go to go to medical school and plans were changed. And so every day I, I grind and I get up and I do everything that I can to make sure that I break down some stereotypes there, right? So everything I do is an, originally for him. He is a senior at Texas Tech University. He's 21 years old now, if you can believe that. It's nutty. So that's, that's one piece. I think the other piece is I have always been a competitive person and I do not like to lose, like just period, right? So my sheer like inner self is if something is broken or not working or we're not achieving, like that fuels me to keep going because I don't want to give up. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know how that was instilled in me, but um, it's always who I've been. If I even go back to sports, like I'm going to be the captain and I'm going to I'm going to keep doing whatever I have to do in order to be that captain. And so I've never been able to shake that away, sometimes to good, sometimes to even a detriment. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a, a, a very consistent trait in the best sales leaders. They're competitive. Right. I know when you know I, my three daughters, I've coached basketball for a number of years. And I like to say we've won all the championship every year, except one year when we lost, when our best player went on vacation. But it was, you know, I, I'm, I'm super intense and competitive in those scenarios. So I, I totally get that. And I imagine, you know, having a 21 year old, which is looks like it's impossible because you're only 25 years old. But, you know, <laughs> I think that, you know, it, you must have had so many ways to be able to tie those two things together from you know, the workplace into, you know, your daily life. So that resonates so much. Parenthood really does help with that. And as you said, being naturally in sales, very similar. You, you see something broken. It's like, even if I didn't want to fix it, I have to, because that's just, that's just my, that's how I am inherently. I just need to fix all of these things. But talking about fixing and, and the, the work that you do and the stuff that excites you when you get into an organization, 
what would you say is like the, the thing that you witness or you have witnessed the most when you go into an organization, you think about the part that can't be scaled? Like, is there anything specific around maybe the, the way sales is structured, the way demand gen structured or inside sales? Or, and what, what do you love about trying to like creating that aha moment inside the organization? So I really, truly believe that what happens when you're small and then you grow too fast is that you bolt things on, right? It's not strategic. It's not thought through. It's just, we need to do what we can to continue the growth trajectory that we're on. And so this was our structure and we're just going to keep throwing things on top of it in every organization from sales to delivery, to operations, to marketing, it's continual throwing on headcount because they need their bodies, right? And no one's over to the side because everyone's in the weeds. No one's over to the side being like, how do we make sure that we continue to allow this structure and structure promotes process and process promotes revenue, right? Like how do you build upon that in the right way? And how do we swallow a big change right now so we don't have to swallow it 17 micro times throughout, throughout the life of our organization? And so- Let's take sales, for example. I've come into sales organizations, and we can go back to my time at Very, where they knew they wanted to go B2B, so they just kept adding inbound bodies, but they didn't look at the CRM. They didn't look at the process. They didn't look at the leadership structure, the meeting structure, the solution statement, the training, right? They're just like, the revenue's coming in, throw the bodies in. And so being able to take a step back, look at the business as a whole, like what is our, what is the bulk of our business? Is it small, medium, big? Are we going to build an ICP? Do we have different verticals here that we need to attack? And then how do we put people against that business in the right way? How do we give them leaders, right? So create some hierarchies. How do we support them, whether it be ops or enablement? And then how do we build process on top of that so that when we want to add another 100 people, we don't have to redo this thing again. Because that's the biggest mistake that people make is they grow all these, they make all these micro changes, but then they have to keep doing it. And people don't like change. Like they can say they do all day, they're liars. Like people don't like change. So that's the biggest thing I've seen is you've got to be able to just step back and really look at everything holistically and then roll out that new organizational structure and design that's scalable for almost forever. I feel like um, I see it so often, you know, that disruptive startup that you spoke about where you've got a company that tries to scale off what the CEO was doing. It's like, that's not going to work. Sales can't, they're not the CEO. <laughs> they, they can't use the same messaging and frameworks and meeting structure and deal values, which the CEO usually sells for free. That doesn't, that's not scalable anymore. <laughs> so it's, I, I, I see that a lot, but I love that takeaway because you're, you're also bringing in things like organizational design and building hierarchies, which I feel like it doesn't get discussed enough. So Oh, yeah, this, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, you mentioned leadership a couple of times and leadership structure. You know, obviously, you've had some diverse stops in your career here. But, you know, how would you describe your approach to leadership, especially in all these different types of roles and, you know, what you're doing today with your current role? I've had a lot of different leadership trainings throughout my career. And the one that stuck the most for me was situational leadership. And I don't know if um, you all have heard it or been through that training. And, and it's not that I follow it exactly to the book, but it helped turn a light bulb on for me. And really what the methodology of situational leadership is, is it's sometimes people need training. Sometimes people need coaching. Sometimes they need support. 
and sometimes they need mentorship and making sure that it's not the person that needs these four quadrants. It's this skill in which they are trying to attack at the time. And it's so easy for leaders to get stuck in their natural leadership self. For example, mind support. I naturally want to support people and help them and help them be successful, but sometimes they need training and sometimes they need coaching, right? And so making sure that you're constantly thinking about what does this person need right now? That's what I've used and seemed to be helpful. I think the other thing is everyone deserves a leader that is responsible for nothing but their success. I think you mentioned something earlier in regards to, uh, you know, taking leadership training. You know, I, I think there's so many different ones out there, but you brought up something which to me is exactly how I look at it, right? I, I never, when I take a training, I don't usually anticipate I'm going to follow everything to the letter of everything they say, right? It's what are the nuggets that you're going to take out of it? And then you make it your own, right? And it sounds like you've done a great job in doing that, especially from a leadership perspective with the different sort. I mean, you've had very diverse roles and, and have had success in all of them. So clearly you've done a great job in kind of taking those nuggets, building it into your own thing and just using that to really help develop everything you want within the org. So that totally, totally down with you for that. It's big time about application, right? As someone that spends, I spend a lot of time with clients doing exactly some, you know, some of the stuff that you're speaking about, Stephanie, but also trying to get leaders to to kind of practice what they preach. And oftentimes it's like, uh, it's like you do have to apply things yourself in the same way that you want your team to apply it or we're, we're back to square one. So firstly, it's interesting that you stepped outside of revenue. It must have been painful because I, I really don't know how I do it myself. And then coming back into it. So you can really see like the other side of the business and, and how they're how they're incentivized and, and how they're built and the processes around that. But why do you feel like it's important to create unity between revenue teams and the wider business and, and, and the way in which that starts to impact culture? I almost think there's nothing more important. And when I think about that COO role, you're exactly right, Hannah. I learned all of the things that I did that ticked off my counterparts for all those years. I now understood it. And I, I always look at like revenue leaders have this gas pedal, right? And they're constantly going and they're like, let me sell everything. Let me do everything I can. And the ops leaders, what I learned is they have a brake pedal. And so I got to learn to use my brake pedal a little bit, which was slow down, let's look at the situation, and let's assess before we just run, which did make me, is is making me today a better revenue leader, but I now have to run rev and ops, so that gas, that start-stop thing's always going with me, right? <laughs> gas break, gas break, all the time, I get whiplash a little bit, but team cohesion is organizational health, right? So if you have sales that is always hitting a number, but what they're selling is garbage and outside of ICP, then your operation falls apart and your finances, at least from an EBITDA standpoint, probably stink, right? If you're not hitting revenue and you're only selling what ops wants, then, then you're probably not hitting top line, which also affects bottom line. So that cohesiveness between all of the teams is ideal and it's built at the executive team. So if you do not have a cohesive executive team that, and I follow um, Patrick Lencioni. Now this one, like I love his books, right? I read every single one. I think his play on executive team health is super important. But if you think about a CFO and a revenue leader that don't get along at all and don't fight and don't have arguments, that's super unhealthy. Like there needs to be healthy conflict at the table. There needs to be challenging and both need to be open to it. And that's, that's, it's across product. It's, it's across everything, right? So if you can get healthy there 
and share cohesion at the top on goals, on what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, then that disseminates down in the right way, which creates um, unity right across the board. But if you don't have it at the top, you'll never have it. Doesn't matter how great your VP level and director level leaders, it'll always come back to the health at the top. Yeah, I've been I've been a victim like mid part of my career where I've seen that fall apart. It's just broken everything. Like nothing's worked. Sales didn't work. Marketing didn't work. And it was literally because of at the top level, there was a massive, massive disconnect. But actually between the CEO and the CFO, the CEO had some wild ideas about how money should be used across the business. And the CFO, of course, naturally looking at operational efficiencies is like, this isn't going to work at all. This doesn't roll down and make any sense. So there was constant conflict, but that in, actually impacted everything where money was allocated, et cetera. So, so that cohesion at the top, I, I love that you're like, there's, there's no choice. <laughs> it's, it, it has to be there. I liked a lot what you said about the brake pedal, right? I might be dating myself, but I'm thinking of, you know, Fred Flintstone putting his feet through the bottom of the car, right? In order to stop <laughs> and make sure they're doing the right things. You know, Hannah, I found it really interesting that Stephanie brought up the concept of situational leadership and how taking this approach can really help leaders support their teams more effectively. Yeah, I agree. I think the concept really aligns well with so much of what we talk about here on Ready, Set, Sell regularly. The need for personalization and bringing that human element to all of your interactions is a theme we consistently see here on the show. And I think situational leadership really illustrates that quite well. Absolutely. You know, it really ties into the overarching idea of taking the time to slow down. And if there's anything I know how to do, it's slow down. So <laughs> you need to take time to get to know the people you're working with on a personal level and make more informed decisions from there. Because once you have that personalized interaction, it really helps you understand the essence of someone and how you can work with them in the best way. Now, Tony, I think you're spot on there. When I think of the great leaders I've known in my own life and career, one quality that's common among them is the ability to put others first, recognize their needs, and really step outside themselves to form lasting connections. No, absolutely. I would totally agree. I think the best managers I've ever had are the people that really think about the team or others before themselves, which makes you want to work even that much harder for them. So, you know, much of being a great sales leader is about understanding human nature and knowing how to make people feel seen and heard. So I think Stephanie's advice is really pertinent here. Tony, we could go on all day about leadership, but let's get back to the interview so we can hear more of Stephanie's nuggets of wisdom. Perfect. You know, I, I wanted to dig down a little bit. I know we've talked a little bit about, you know, your track record, but, you know, you've been an executive member of not one, not two, but three record-breaking companies, which is, you know, amazing. That's outstanding. So, you know, and they've each boasted, I think, triple-digit growth, right? Just, which is unbelievable. But, you know, when you think about that, which of your qualities or habits and strategies do you really credit to that success across, you know, such diverse uh, units? There are a lot of things, right? I don't think it's one thing. The thing I really pride myself on, first and foremost, is just taking that leadership approach and that human pro approach, that people approach first. And a lot of people say they do that, but how are they doing it? And how are they displaying that? And back to what you said, Hannah, like how are they practicing what they preach? They could say that leadership and people are the most important, but if their business decisions don't take people into account, then that's, then that's not true. Right. So, um, 
So I, in that, I'll share an example, right? So when I came into Vary and the structure was wrong, as I had mentioned, right? We were, we were not being proactive. Um, we weren't building for the future and we weren't giving our people any leadership credibility, like at the top, right? For them to have coaching and training and all of the things that they deserved. And so, you know, I could have just said, Hey guys, this isn't what we're doing. And you guys are all getting new positions and here's your new teams and have a nice day. But that would have been incredibly disruptive and very scary, right? For a lot of the organization. And so instead, you know, at that point it was 40 people. I said, in the next two weeks, I need to meet with every single one. I had one-on-ones with every single person to learn what their strengths were, what their magic wand was, like what, if they could have anything, what would it be? What was working? What wasn't working? Learned about their families, wrote them all personal cards, and then met with everybody to share what I learned from that delivery message, then also shared, here are the pain points that we're experiencing as a team. And here's our approach and way I think we can fix it. Shared what the new roles would be, had individual conversations with all of them on almost like pseudo interviews to make sure it was right seat. And then we rolled things out and we did it through a full change management plan where you were doing, you know, group messaging, then individual messaging, then team messaging, and then you do it in writing and then you have another meeting, right? I mean, it was a lot. I could have easily just done, here's what we're doing but instead decided to take that human approach to make sure we were getting people on board and excited for what we were doing. And I I shared that example, but I really try to do that in everything I do, right? Even if the decision's been made, I share the why. I meet with them individually. I meet with them again as a group, right? I want people to understand because as humans, we deserve to understand why decisions are being made. And I think that's missed by a lot of leaders. They look at themselves as I'm in charge and I'm making this decision and they move on and don't explain the why. I I think um, what happens is people get to like this, like part way. I say part way. It's very different for others, but like you get to maybe like set between like that seven to 10 year window in a, in a sales or a a commercial role. And um, everything is about being human. Okay. So if I just treat people as whole human beings who are fully capable and I also just show general respect (laughs) and I listen most things will be achieved, like whether it's externally with a client or it's internally with my internal stakeholders. But I feel like I know the answer to, to, to this question when I'm thinking about non-negotiables, uh, Stephanie. But um, what are some of your non-negotiables when it comes to actually building and scaling solid sales teams? So first, in coming into any new organization, I've got to make sure I can work with my peers, So peer team is number one team. So I've got to meet with my peers in the interview process. I've got to make sure that I see cohesion there. As I mentioned before, if that's not cohesive, nothing else is, right? So that's that's a non-negotiable for me. I've got to meet with them. The second piece of that is, right, leadership, right? You've got to have a great sales leader and I've got to not have a player coach, right? I've got to win that battle. No player coaches. I don't want my leader to compete with their team. Thank you, right? That's not happening. Um, the other piece is training. We've got to have the ability and maybe in the beginning, it's not a tool because you don't have the budget. Right. And so, so maybe it's just that we set aside that time and that it's prioritized throughout the organization. People need the opportunity to practice their art and their craft. And so training is the way to do that. 
And then I'd say the other piece here is I teach this. And so it's important to me, but I've got to have a say in how we're building our annual revenue forecast and our quotas because I'm, I'm passionate about that. I've walked into where it was not achievable and you could be the best sales leader in the world. If quotas are not achievable for your team, you're going to lose them over and over again, right? It's constant failure. And so, um, so that's important to me too. That's a non-negotiable. I've got to be able to take a look at that and put my put my touch on it. And uh, Stephanie, you've had some great insights on some of the right things that organizations should be doing when they're thinking about building and scaling. But you know, what would you say from your experience are some of the common missteps that people might take when they're you know they're scaling and growing their teams? And and what can what can leaders do to try and help avoid them? So the first thing that I've seen that's just a huge mistake is sales headcount does not always equal revenue. So that is a common uh, ill math equation that people like to people like to build. It's like, hey, you're going to do 50 million this year. How many heads do you need to do it? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not how this works, right? And then if it works one year, it doesn't mean it works the next and it doesn't work the next. You always have to reassess. And so that is a major mistake. Uh, the Also, the other one is the efficiency metric. You don't all of a sudden get to be 15% more efficient because you implement a new tool. And that 15% doesn't go on top of a revenue number, right? So that happens often. They're like, oh, if we invest in this tool, can you do 15 more million dollars this year? And the sales leaders sit there like, maybe. I want the tool. So if I need to do the revenue, I'll figure it out. And that often is also a recipe for disaster. And then lastly, I'd say, so I said, you know, head doesn't equal, you need a marketing partner, right? And so many times do I see sales and marketing like this, right? They're fighting, they have different metrics, their goals aren't aligned. And that also comes to the head of sales should not be the only one that is accountable to your, to your revenue number as an organization. It should be everybody. Right. Products responsible. Marketing's responsible. The CEO's responsible. The CFO's responsible. Everyone should feel responsibility. And too often does it just lay on that one person's shoulders, which is why they have like the head of sales. I think right now the statistic has gone down. So it was 17 months was the average tenure of a head of sales. Um, it's down to 16 months. So it's not going in the right direction. It's going in the wrong direction. But that's the reason. I've seen it in companies where it's like this person did one million last year, not the best salesperson, but the product market fit at that time. There was nothing else and they did an incredible job. So they hired five more people to do that. That next year, that sales rep did 200K (laughs) and everybody else did about the same. And it was like, what? What's happened? Get rid of everybody. And it's like, stop firing salespeople. But just thinking about those missteps and thinking about the processes that actually exist inside sales teams and go-to-market engines, what would you say are some of your top tips for actually streamlining that process development journey? And I'm a sales process geek, so I love everything around processes and funnel metrics. So what are some of those top tips that you've got that I can steal today? Thanks, Stephanie. (laughs) The first thing is starting out right. So if we go back to, you know, figuring out what's possible, you've got to look at actuals in a waterfall methodology approach, right? So look at your top metric, whatever that may be for you, right? It could be it could be web traffic or it could just be leads to MQLs and MQLs to SQLs, but look at actuals and then decide how you're going to drive your actuals at the top up by what percentage and that's by budget, right? What budget do you have to invest to drive that top of funnel up? So making sure that that is right is first. Then from a process standpoint, being able to come in and look at every single 
individual process of the actual sales process, right? So from the minute they receive an SQL, what do they do with it? Why do they follow that process? What is our SLA? Is it appropriate? Do we feel like it matches the economic environment? You know, every single piece of that we're diving into and we're turning over. So is that an efficient way to do it? Probably not, Hannah, but it gets buy-in from the team because we're building it together right? And we're taking it one step at a time. This is exactly coming in at that scalable moment where something's been working for a while, but are we sure it still works? And do we want to build for the future instead? Yeah, that that why, having a regular cadence of why with regards to it, rather than waiting till it's broken, waiting till you have, you know, 50% of your revenue, potential revenue stuck in one stage, like just that constant, okay, so, so what's happening now? Let's look at the data. What are we hearing? What's closed? What's not closed? What is it telling us? And then why? Why do we still do it this way? Is People don't do that. It doesn't happen very often. It's like, it, there's like, I built our sales process. I've, I've never looked at it again. It's just what it is. So creating that frequency of why, yeah, that's that's pretty compelling. I'd love to see more of that. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, the steps in the process, right? Which is really, you know, the, the customer journey, right? What is that journey that really we need to go upon to get to where we need to be? And, you know, I was curious as to, you know, what does it mean to you about creating fluency in that customer journey? And, you know, when you're creating that fluency, what are the strategies that you've employed or that you look to employ to really help accomplish that? Yeah, you know, that's my job today. In my current role, my job is the entire customer journey and removing pinch points from that journey. And you can't do that until you map it out. And you would be amazed at how many organizations don't have a full customer journey map all the way through, even post, right? They they churn or they leave the organization, your client. What's happening after that? Are they going back into a nurture cycle? Do they enjoy that, right? So being able to really map that out and, and notate the pain points, that's what I'm doing right now, right? I'm six months in, and so we've done, one of the things I noticed right away was that we had a client services organization, which is the biggest part of our organization. It's all the marketing strategists, right? So it's about 100 people. And in that structure, we had had a, a structure that worked like forever. They've always had it that way. It was a strategist with a specialist and they were in these little pods and and it just always worked. But you looked at their book of business and they had all sorts of accounts in there, big ones, difficult ones, startups. And it was like, oh, how do you take off this hat and put on another one and then take it off and put on another one? And so the pinch point that was found was, can we go up market with this structure and are our clients getting the best strategist for their specific business based on their experience? And the answer was no, right? Like we our, our clients deserved something better. And so that's where we did just launch verticals within our business that addressed people could come in and be able to take on smaller clients, but needed to be gritty and creative. And so this is here. Whereas if you go to the next, that's a growth segment. You go to an expansion, which is more scaling, right? The organization is growing and they maybe have some complexities and we need to help them. Wherever you go to enterprise and you're talking major complexities, stable environment, different, different direct contact. And so what we did there is we removed 
a pinch point, right, for the client, but also helped the inner organization with career pathing and different opportunities for growth and training and services. And so that's, I think, the big takeaway here is when you look at a customer journey and you look at the fluency of that and you find your pinch points, what you'll often find is when you fix one, you've actually solved three other things internally and solved one thing for the client, right? So it's amazing how how that ends up shaking out. Pinch points. I like that. I just like the sound of that. I don't know if I've heard that before, but uh, pinch points, uh, that's very cool. Usually my pinch points are when, you know, the bottle is a little bit towards the bottom and you got to go buy another <laughs> one. But, you know, I think they, they, they kind of go hand in hand. Stock oh, your fridge, it. Tony. Stock your fridge. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've been doing a lot of uh, coaching on on trust and just really looking at some of the, the big thought leaders in the space around how you start to build trust both with clients, but also with, with your internal stakeholders. Now, Stephanie, thinking about the, the role that you play now, but also the roles that you've done in order to drive those that those changes, you definitely have to be a of a particular character, a, a trustworthy one at that to actually get that buy in. Like they, they need to trust you. So um, how do you actually go about building that credibility and also um partners uh, with 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 um and, and partnerships internally uh, but also with the, the kind of broader stakeholders at maybe like a rep level inside the organization change management um is key and understanding not just the number of meetings and the process that you need to follow but the psychology behind how people process change and so you know, anything that a new leader comes in, people know change is coming, right? They hired them for a reason. They're going to roll something out. And sometimes it has to happen faster than maybe even the leader wants it to. And so, you know, one of the things that I had done at SmartBug in my current role is we're 100% remote. I'd never met anyone um, before. I have a org of like 125, 130, and I'm trying to build these relationships and build this trust but I can't meet people in groups, right, where it's impactful. They've got to be one-on-ones. And so very much to what I shared um, at Very, I really tried to do a ton of get-to-know use because until I earn your trust, I don't earn to lead, right? Like that's how I look at it. I have to earn your trust to be able to lead you. And I haven't, I didn't earn that yet. And so I can't go in and say, I'm going to lead you in this direction. And you've never had a conversation with me. You don't know who I am. You don't know where I live. You don't know if I have children or what my intentions are. I think that's the magic word is what are your intentions? And so, um, you know, I've really embraced an overly authentic persona right, within any organization that I've been in to say I hold like, for example, I hold office hours twice a week. Sometimes no one comes. Sometimes lots of people come, but it's a place where they can just come in and say like, hey, this new process rolled out. Like, I'm uncertain. Can you help me understand? And and I listen and they're just they're just sessions. Right. And I'm talking about my daughter come in and I'm doing her hair. Right. Because she's off to cheer camp across the street. And I've got the dog coming in and I'm maybe wearing a T-shirt that day because I and a ponytail on top of my head like today. Right. Because I'm tired and I show them that. Um, I think it's back to even like being a human, like you got to be a human to build trust too. Right. And so it's, it's hard though, right? It's, it's not easy coming in at the top, being remote, implementing change and showing intention. It takes time, but it also uh, has to be intentional in your conversations and your relationship building. Yeah. That, that intent thing is, is massive. And I feel like in building trust, and you, you've probably, I think we've all been a victim, I'd say, I, I will use the word victim, 
of a, a situation where we've been engaged with a leader, whether they were our kind of our peer or maybe they were higher up in hierarchy, where they're walking through something and it's like, I just know that your intentions are not pure. I can feel it. Your body language, you're not being congruent. I just, your follow-up, it. I, you just feel uncomfortable. You, you look uncomfortable. You're making me uncomfortable. Like, just keep it real. <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> right? So that, that intention piece is is really, really significant. And I feel like a lot of people um, that ha- uh, could probably do a better job at looking inwardly and being like, to be fair, like, what's my true intention here? Do, do I care enough? If not, maybe I should not be responsible for this, and that's okay. But I, I don't feel like many people would will take that on board. So we're kind of getting towards the end here. So want to hear a little bit more about what's what's next for you, you know, as an individual, but also you know, uh, Smartbug Media, you know, what's coming. So we'll start with Smartbug. Again, I've only been there for about six months, but we're we're growing. We have goals to continue to grow about 30% every year. And we've got some fun roadmap stuff planned ahead, right? We want to expand our paid media practice. Right now, it's supportive of our inbound practice, but we want it to be larger. We did a recent acquisition about a year ago that is Ecom Channel, DTC. And so we brought them under the Smartbug umbrella in January. And so really doing some interesting things there, learning about Clavio and that whole like direct to consumer e-com um, business. We have some fabulous strategists there, but it's new for me. So learning quite a bit in that sector. And then, you know, as we continue to grow, we just did that reorg in our client services department and it's it's set for scalability, right? So I think the world is our oyster right now on what we want to do and what direction we want to go and how do we continue to help businesses even through an economic downturn? You know, we're fast and we pivot quickly and people need different things than they needed five months ago when we're helping them with that. So fun things there. I'd say for me, I've still got a lot to learn. So I've noticed throughout my career, I'm always about two, three years in each role. And I've had a lot of self-reflection. Like, why is that stuff? Like, why do you go so fast? And for me, it's when I really feel like I'm an expert at something or I get something humming, I'm bored. I need it again, right? Because I'm a builder, I'm a scaler. And so when it when it becomes easy, I don't wanna do it anymore. I don't know why I do this to myself, but I do. And so I think I've got quite a bit of time here still with Smartbug learning. Uh, that's great. Well, like you said, you're never finished with the learning process, right? And uh, we learned a lot here today, but we're not done yet. We're not done. We're close, but we're not done. <laughs> we're going to do what we call a rapid fire session. So we're going to learn a little bit more where we're going to throw a couple of questions at you. At first thing that comes to mind, you come out with. So first question is, what is your sales philosophy in just three words? Passionate, inquisitive, direct. What is the best piece of advice you've been given in your career? In order to be the best version of yourself, you just have to be yourself. So don't put on a hat for work. Come to work authentic. Don't try to be someone you're not, right? Because it, it, in your most stressful times, it'll shine through. So just be you. You'll find the right company that accepts that. So what's your top productivity hack? I am obsessed with Slack. I mean, I hated it, right? Like I originally was like, I'm an old school person, right? Like I want my PC, I want my Outlook. 
Um, I've got my notebook that I write in still. Like I grew up in a little bit more of an old school, but Slack is now my life. I set myself to-dos, reminders. I send myself messages. I pin things in Slack. So I'm really starting to learn to love Slack as a communication tool, especially in a remote environment. Now, these do not have to be business related, but top three apps you couldn't live without. Well, I couldn't live without my calendar. Like that's that's number one, period, point blank. I live by my calendar. I actually love Tally. So I just got on Tally because I hate having to figure out what credit cards to pay at what time. And so Tally is this new app that just pays them for you through your bank account. And it pays any of them that have like the highest interest rates down to zero first and balances them for you. So it's really interesting. So I've enjoyed playing around with that recently. And then lastly, I would say probably LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> I and love I'm LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I'm a fan. Yeah, I'm a LinkedIn guy. I, I also, uh, I'm a movie guy, so I am DB Pro. And I got to admit, at the end of the day, I need to chill out. I do a little TikTok with a beer. It, it, make, it kind of ends the day in a nice way. So it's, it's a good thing. Terry, I need to see your TikTok. I can't believe I'm just finding this out. Um, but, but more importantly, Stephanie, question for you, are leaders made or born? Oh, this question's so hard. I just have to answer what's on the top of my head. Okay, um, can I say both? <laughs> All right, made. Both, but made. I think there is a both. Like you have to have that, that naturalness inside of you that wants to support others. Some people just don't have that patience in them and don't have that desire, right? So if they have that core competency of like, I, I wanna put others first, and, and that natural instinct to do so, then I think that you can you can do make, for sure. Okay, no, 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 I, I'm with you there. And what book would you say has inspired you the most in your career? The Ideal Team Player by Patrick Lanciani. All right, I already mentioned I'm a movie guy, so sell me this pen or always be closing. <laughs> sell me this pen. I still use it, I it's still. awful, Tony. I get made <laughs> fun of for it, but I tell you, I, I, I it, you can you test coachability. That's what I use it for. You got to test coachability. If you, Plus, if you know, you, you can't go wrong with DiCaprio and Scorsese, right? I mean, that's like two of the totally. top of the line right there. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a new mind it. uh, module coming soon. Tell me this, Ben. I love it. This has been exciting. This has been brilliant. Some really, really great learnings and shares here. Love the fact that you are a builder and that your leader right now has just put a, a calendar invite in your diary for like 2025 to be like, Stephanie, don't leave. <laughs> Stay at Smartbug. <laughs> Are you bored yet? Please don't go. I can see it already. But um, really, thank you, for, thank you for being here and love it. Love that. This was great, guys. <laughs> Tony, what a great conversation with Stephanie. I'm so glad she took the time to sit down with us and share all her best kept leadership secrets. I told you, I've got my notepad out always. <laughs> yeah, she was fantastic. I mean, could be one of my favorite guests. She had so much energy, you know, and I, I think she had so many great pieces of advice to share. You know, I'm curious, from everything, you had your notebook out, from everything we discussed, is there anything that really stood out to you in particular? 
Hmm, I think overall I found Stephanie's holistic outlook to be really inspiring. Um, when it comes to sustainable business growth, you really need to be able to take a step back and look at the organisation from a bird's eye view and take multiple factors into account at once. And it's not always the easiest thing to do, but Stephanie seems to enjoy chaos. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. You know, I, I think Stephanie also made some great points about situational leadership. We talked about that you know, a little bit earlier, but you know, to be a great leader, you need to be able to assess each situation on a case-by-case basis and really learn to trust your instincts. Yeah, I'm really big on establishing trust with teams, particularly in a leadership position. I mean, it all comes back to bringing that element of humanity and authenticity to each interaction and making sure people feel understood on a fundamental level. Exactly. You know, overall, I think Stephanie really reminded us of the power of showing up as your authentic self and putting people first. Oh, love it. I mean, as long as you stay humble and ensure your intentions are consistently in the right place, you really can't go too wrong as a leader. But thanks again to Stephanie for joining us. We hope you'll be taking away some valuable lessons from today's episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ready, Set, Sell. We hope you took away some valuable lessons and insights that inspire you to reevaluate your approach to sales readiness. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show when you get a minute. And stay tuned for the next episode of Ready, Set, Sell.